Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word and that you give us your word to learn and follow. We ask you to guide and lead us as we examine it. Show us what you would want us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The very first words we're starting is for this cause. So we're going to look back and say for what cause. Uh, Paul has been building up in the first part of this chapter that they were examples to the people, that they followed, they, fought, they put Christ first, they labored for, to be good witnesses, and they really cared for the people. And then we get to 13, and he says, for this cause. So we wanted to kind of lay that groundwork for those who had missed or wasn't paying attention to the first part. So verse 13, for this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which is effectually working also in you that believe. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which are in Judea and in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things in your own country, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill their sins always for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endured, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered me. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So here Paul is bringing up and he says, because of all the example we have been, we thank God for you. And this is kind of an amazing thing. Paul is so always telling his churches, We thank God for you. We thank God for you. I can't imagine how long Paul spent in each day praying because he's he's praying for all the churches. He's praying for everybody that he remembers. He he would make our little little, uh, 84-person prayer list look like like just a little note that it is, and he'd have this book. (laughs) All right? Did he pray for every single person every single day? He said he did, but I'm not sure that he did by name every single person for every day but he spent a lot of time in prayer and this was Paul's devotion to God he loved God so much that he spent time he probably got up early in the morning started his day with prayer and then went out and ministered and and worked and all the things that he did and probably ended his day in prayer he he was raised a Jew he probably prayed three times a day just like Daniel and and other other uh, the prophets morning, noon, and evening. He most likely played three times a day, and I'm not sure he prayed long times on all three times, but there were times that he just spent in prayer. Be- I used to pray for all. Is there that many on the list? It's a long, it's a fairly long list. Yeah. And so he says, we give God thanks without ceasing 
Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. And this is very important. If a pastor or a teacher is truly teaching God's word, anointed by the Holy Spirit, they're speaking the word of God, not their own words. Now, does that mean they're always doing that? Not necessarily. Sometimes they speak in their own strength. But there are other times, and you, you know the difference when you listen to it, and it's coming from God and when it's coming from man. And Paul said, we thank that you, when you heard, treated it as what it was, the word of God, which works effectually also in you that believe. And work, what that means is works abundantly, all right? very largely. God's word, when it enters your heart, makes changes. All right, and this is very important. We read God's word, we hear God's word, we act on God's word, and he changes us from the inside out. And this is the beauty of his word. His word is very powerful. We're told that the word of God is quick and powerful, more powerful than a two-edged sword, dividing the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow. You know, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for instruction in, in righteousness. All of these things, the word of God changes lives. And if you've walked with God long enough, you know that, that that splitting between the soul and the spirit is very precise. And it keeps with the spiritual and cuts out the soulish. Because God does not want us acting upon our soul. He wants us acting on the spirit, which is when we are born again, we get a new spirit that is resurrected in us and placed in us. And there's a battle in our body between the soul and the, and the flesh and the spirit. The spirit wants to do what God wants. The soul and the body wants to do what the world wants. And this is why Paul said in Romans, O wretched man that I am, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do because he's saying... My spirit wants to do what's right, but my flesh and my soul keeps popping up and moving me in the wrong direction. And this is what needs to be crucified. Our flesh, our soul needs to be crucified so that the flesh, uh, the spirit stands up in victory and shines out Jesus because that is, the, that is our new birth. We are born into this world as human beings missing our spirit the spirit died when adam and eve sinned so that they were souls living and bodies flesh and blood but they did not have the spiritual connection to god they lost that when they've sinned and everybody that's born since then is born with a dead soul and that's why jesus told nicodemus you must be born again you must have a new spiritual life born of the water not just flesh all right the spirit and the water not just not just the flesh he says you need a spiritual birth and when we get that spiritual birth a battle starts within us you know, uh, now the more we read the bible the more we get taught the more we feed our spirit the better off we are and let god crucify this the, the soul and this and the flesh but they don't like to die very easily, especially if they ruled it for a long time in you. 
if you get saved 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, the spirit, the, the, uh, the soul, and the body have had a lot of time to establish patterns. And the spirit comes in as a newcomer, powered by God, but comes in as the newcomer, and they don't like to give up. And that's where we need to get into the word, study, follow what, God, you know, what this Paul said, you, you heard the word and you accepted it as the word of God. And we accept it as the word of God, then we act upon his word. Uh, there's times, though, and we've all probably been there where you sit in and you listen to a message, you read a script, section of scripture, and you go, okay, God, not today. <laughs> the soul wins out today. Uh, uh, I'm not paying attention. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I probably should be doing this, but I'm not ready. And we let the spirit, uh, the, the spirit get defeated by the soul and the flesh. And sometimes we just get so wrapped up in this world that we let the spirit and the, and the soul uh, the spirit get ruled by the soul and the, and the flesh because we just get wrapped up in everything that's going on. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which is in Judea, are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things in your own country, of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So he says, you become followers of God. And this word for followers literally is imitators. Imitators of the church in Judea. Where, why did he use the church in Judea? That's the church of Jerusalem. That was the first church. That's the church where Peter and Andrew and James and John and everybody is at. And he says, you're, you're imitating them. You're following Christ. You, and because of that, you have suffered. And he says, you've suffered just like them. Of the Jews, you've had your people coming after you. This is what happens when we become Christians. We will suffer at the hands of the lost. Always. And when we first get saved, we really know what it's like because our friends start thinking that we think we're better than them. They think that we're a holy roller, uh, that we're causing all kinds of trouble and they start drifting away you know most of us do not have to leave our our old friends they leave us they go uh, I don't like you anymore you don't go out partying all the time all you ever want to do is go to church and read your Bible and pray you're no fun anymore you know you and you think you're better than we are we've all heard these things you just think you're better than us you're just no fun you don't do anything that we want to do and they followed away from them and they were persecuted. Even within Thessalonica, they were persecuted. Remember, in Jerusalem, they get saved. And the Jews, when somebody became a Christian or any other religion out there, if you leave Judaism, you are considered dead by your friends and family because you dared to leave Judaism. And in the Orthodox families, they will literally have a funeral for their son or daughter that leaves the faith and they won't take a phone call from them they won't receive letters they won't listen to messages they treat them as if they are literally dead because they have left Judaism and this is a big deal and this is what he's saying you have suffered in like manner now did they have funerals and stuff for them no but you know they're in a they're in a place where they're worshiping idols and all of a sudden they're saying there's one God we really don't understand what this was like to, the go, to go to the people who believe in 
in dozens of gods, hundreds of gods, and tell them there is only one God. They're going to look at you like, and which one of the hundred gods is it? You know, the one you don't believe in. Yeah, the one you're not believing in. The one without an idol, with the one without, you know, the one without an idol that you're not that you worship. You know, whereas Paul said, this altar to the unknown god. Uh, but this was a problem for them. You know, the Jews, you had left the true faith because you had followed after Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom they didn't believe in as being the Messiah. So they go, you guys are following, you know, this this sinner, this, and you're having this guy that you. Th- are claiming rose from the get dead and our leaders are all saying that you stole his body so what's what's wrong with you in Thessalonica it would have been this, virtually the same thing you know well you're no longer worshiping Zeus and Athena and Mars and and Mercury uh, what is this one God stuff that you're talking about and are you making yourself better than us <laughs> and that was what the problem was coming up they're not Really accepting any of this? It's in Greece. Yeah, it's over here. Well, Macedonia and Greece are pretty much the same, same, same place. Okay. I just had to look it up for myself. I knew it was in Greece, but I just wanted to. Yeah, well, Macedonia is that whole northern area. Technically, Macedonia is just above. Okay. Uh, but as far as in today's world, it's still in, in Greece. And they were worshippers of gods. Worshipper of money gods. Everybody was at that time. Uh, Christi- uh, Judaism really introduced in monotheistic re- uh, worship in the Middle East. Uh, now, the followers of Eber, who were monotheistic, moved more to the Far East over, over years. Uh, in many places in the northeast part of the, of the uh, Middle East also were worshipers of one God. The Midianites whom, who Moses went to were worshipers of one God. They, uh, and, they, and I would say they worshiped Jehovah. They just didn't know him in the same way that Abraham knew him. All right, because Eber in his day was one who really pushed for the worship of one God in his battles against uh, Nimrod and that whole evil that Nimrod laid out in, and started with all false worships, well literally Satan through Nimrod, but Nimrod was the one that pushed for multiple false religions. He had a pantheon of 32 gods and over the years that pantheon of 32 gods has grown to to hundreds of gods, but they all fall within those 32 gods of the of the early days. So is that what Greek mythology? Is? Greek mythology is based on that whole thing. Uh, Greek mythology is also because if you look at Greek mythology, it's very similar. A lot of things that happened, like Hercules. Hercules does a lot of the things that the Messiah was going to do. All right, so the sociologists and, and archaeologists say that Christianity is just a branch of Greek mythology and Babylonian mythology and because all of these all these mythologies have had a great half son of the gods doing great things clearing out clearing out whatever their version of Hades is destroying the evil one uh, redeeming people 
And so Satan has laid in place, knowing the story of Jesus, laid in place a bunch of lies so that everybody would look at the lies and say that Jesus' reputation came from the lies that Satan penetrated because Satan knew from the very first that Jesus was going to be the son of the son of God was going to come and redeem mankind so he laid out a whole bunch of lies ahead of time and this is the funny thing because we see things we see time differently because we know that God is eternal and he laid out the plan of salvation from the very beginning of mankind and Satan has corrupted it over time and we see this even in the stories of the flood all right there are flood stories in every nationality every people group have stories of the flood they have been changed and altered but they all boil down to the world was destroyed by a flood one family was saved now the boats and sometimes are kind of strange sometimes the Polynesians he got saved by a great big outrigger canoe that somehow held all the people in the and the and the animals in the in this massive flood that covers the world other ones have you know various small boats that just couldn't have that none of their stories are the real one family they don't usually name they don't usually name Noah but one family and his one one family was was saved uh, and so in summer don't have worldwide floods some just have a major flood that so there's variations on the flood, but the idea that every single nation has it tells us that there was really an event. Now we can sift through the stories and say which, which story can actually hold water to survive, and the biblical story is really the only one that talks about a boat big enough to truly save the, save the people in the world. All the rest of them are, would never have been able to float during the middle of a storm with, with a fully loaded loaded uh, people. So we look at... <laughs> so, but these are what happens as we go on and, and we have these stories that are out there and Satan has always told lies. In some cases he's taken the story that he knew more of than we did and laid it out for people so that we would then see Jesus and go, wow, Jesus is just the Jewish, the Jewish Hercules. And that's what most of those people would have thought back there. Hercules had gone in. He'd gone into Hades. He had rescued people out of Hades. He had battled with the, the gods and won. He had defeated, he defeated uh, Hades for death. You know, all these different stories. He, you know, he cleansed things. And people go, well, Jesus is just a, just a Hercules. Yes. Yeah, there were different, I mean, we're not talking exactly, I mean, yeah. Satan's stories are never complete. Yeah. They're lies. Well, that's a huge difference. And also the fact that Zeus never really fully helped Hercules, whereas Jesus had the help of his father all the way through. So, I mean, there's huge difference. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're the same story. But the world looks at him and says, Jesus is just a Jewish, Jewish Hercules myth. All right. Uh, so, and we go back to even in Nimrod. Nimrod supposedly died, was gone for three days, resurrected with power, and had a son that did the same thing. All right, so we see the picture of Jesus even way back there. So when people look at the story of Jesus, they go, well, gee, we've got this Babylonian one, we've got an Assyrian one, and, 
and they just point out the lies that Satan put in place to say, see, we're going we're to muddy the water. He's not going to be an unusual character with the things he does. Now, being born a virgin, you know, again, Nimrod's son was supposed to be born a virgin. His wife had an immaculate conception, and he had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then he died and was gone for, th you know, there's all these stories. But just understand, when you talk to people, these stories are all brought up. You know, what it's what they believe, and then they, and they take those and say, well, Jesus is just another, another one of these miraculous half-God half God stories that, that are out there. Right. Well, it's a totally different story. It's a, it is a totally different thing. But that's an answer to him. He's not a half-god. No, he's not a half-god. He had the love of his father. His father resurrected him, and none of the others, none of the other ones actually resurrected, even though they might have said they did. Uh, but you also have to understand, this is going to be exactly what happens during the, for the Antichrist. He is going to appear to die and be resurrected. All right? He's going to make up stories that somehow he was born in Bethlehem, the right place, and that he had a virgin birth. You know, uh, All these stories are all going to be lifted up again because he's got to convince the Jews that he's the Messiah. So he's going to somehow twist the prophecies to say that it's him. All right? so, but it's been done forever. Satan has been doing this since the flood, twisting the story of Jesus so that, so that he can try to tr mess up the story of Jesus. And because God so fully predicted it, it made it pretty easy for him to come along and put out a lie because it was very clear what was going to happen. So he puts out a lie that matches up against it really well but it is a lie because they don't stand up. When scrutinized, they don't stand up. They don't, you know, there's no proof of the virgin birth. And, and you know, how do you prove a virgin birth in the first place? You know, uh, even for Jesus, we have to take that by faith, that Mary and Joseph did not lie. And I truly believe it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to deceive, but that is something we have to take by faith because that is something that cannot physically happen in our physical world. It has to be a miracle from God so we have to take that by faith. The resurrection is not quite as big a faith. I mean, we've got all kinds of proofs. There's no body, and we see the lies going on, and it's pretty easy to see through all the lies. But the virgin birth is something we have to take by faith because we can't prove it. None of us were there with Mary to know that she, she had never known a man other than by her word and God's word. So we just say, yes, it, it was true. It was forecast. It had to be true. It's the only way that Jesus could be 100% man, he could be born without sin, and be the sacrifice that could redeem us. Because if he was born of man, he would have been imperfect and flawed from birth and could not be the sacrifice. So the virgin birth had to be part of his birth for him to be the perfect sacrifice. And so there's all of this story that goes around, and if you ever talk to people that are, you know, that are trying to be smart... <laughs> They'll quote all of these different stories to you, and they'll quote Nimrod, they'll quote Hercules, they'll quote other Middle Eastern uh, mythologies, and even Norse mythologies and Indian mythologies. This mythology goes everywhere because Satan has pushed it out there, and because the true story is out there as well, it always got changed. And people are trying to prove they have the Messiah. 
you know, they have the Messiah in their religion. So it doesn't take away from what we believe, but it does prove to us, just as we've said when we followed the Truth Project, God has one truth, Satan has many lies. Always has lies in his place. He does not create anything, including truth. He creates lies where he changes the truth into, into a lie. And so we see all of this, and I don't know how we got there on this, but where was I? Verse 14. <laughs> uh, he says, you have suffered many things from your countrymen. And this is going to be one of those things. You guys are being strange. What happens in this day and age as well is during the Greek and the Roman Empire, uh, nudism and, and everything was, was rampant. The Jews were very strange in that day because they believed in covering up. They believed in modesty. They, they had problems in the, the, the whole area. Of their, so now all of a sudden these people are not going to pay attention to the nudity going around. They're not getting into the lascivious lifestyle and the orgies and everything that they're all getting into worship. And they're standing for God and they are looking rather strange compared to everybody. Just as we as Christians are supposed to look strange to everybody else. We don't enjoy the stuff they enjoy. We don't, we don't you know, we're, we're not going to spend our time entertaining ourselves with the same entertainment and doing the, the same activities. And people look at us and what they're going to accuse us of is thinking that we're better than they are. It has nothing to do with that. It just says, I want to honor God. It has nothing to do with being better or worse than somebody. It's just saying, God asks me to live a certain lifestyle and I'm going to li live it and that will include not going out and sleeping around dressing modestly uh, working before our God you know watching what we fill our minds with all the things that go with righteous living and people look at us and they judge us because they think that we're trying to say we're better than them and we've all probably had that accusation at some point in time you just think you're better than me. No, I'm no better than you. I just know Jesus. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be going to hell. And I'd probably be doing all the stuff that you're doing <laughs> if it wasn't for him. So we, we have this, and they're being attacked. Attacked by their own people. And Paul goes on to say, For those who killed the Lord Jesus and their own pro prophets have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So Paul is going on, and this was a story from each one of the, of the disciples. Jesus even told it to the scribes and fairies, you who killed the prophets. Stephen, as he's getting ready to be stoned, you who have killed the prophets. <laughs> they could not deny that they had killed the prophets. That was their penchant. Any prophet of God, eventually, you seemed to lose their life because they would say just one too many words from God and be executed. Isaiah, one of the great prophets, was put in a log, sawn in half, according to, to the Jewish, Jewish uh, legends. Jeremiah, thrown into pits and dungeons every time he spoke. Uh, over and over, these guys would be punished by the Jewish leaders for speaking God's word. And basically what Paul and all the disciples are saying, we don't expect anything less as Christians. We should not expect anything less from the world when we speak about God than to be attacked by the world. 
because we do not stand with the world and the world's going to look at us as if we're strange and they're going to feel conviction and they're going to fight back. Now in our country they don't get to kill us yet. They might make fun of us, they might ostracize us, but at this moment in our country they don't kill us. It may come soon that we get thrown into prisons and get killed for being followers of God. But Paul's saying this is what you were facing. Uh, and, it, and their actions do not please God. And it's kind of an interesting statement and he says they are contrary to man. They're in opposition to what men do as well. Men generally try to seek out God. Now they may, not, they may do it the wrong way, the wrong, for the wrong reasons, but over and above, people want God. They just don't know who he is or how to reach him because they want to do it their way. They don't want to do it God's way because God's way seems really silly. Confess that I'm a sinner and, and accept the gift of Jesus and I'll go to heaven. That sounds so silly to people and it means that I don't get to do anything. For we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. The world hates that. People want to be able to boast. Look at all the good things I did to please God. I gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to God. I spent this much time serving him. I did this. I did this. I did this. I earned my place with God through all the good things that I did. And God says, nope, not going to be good enough. You have to be perfect. And that irritates people. They don't want to do it God's way. Because it seems so simple. And what's simple about it is that you have to give up yourself. I, don't, I cannot have any pride that I got saved. It's God's amazing grace that I got saved. It was nothing I did, nothing that I desired. God gave me grace and I got saved. And that's all it is. And that is what the biggest hurdle is for most of the world to get saved. Well, what, what is my part? It's just too easy. What, what do I have to do? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? All you've got to do is confess and ask for forgiveness. Well, that's just too easy. Yep, it's so easy that you can't do it. Uh, and that's the amazing thing. It is super easy to become a Christian. But it is so easy that most people will not do it. And it's a sad thing. You know, that they won't bend their will because pride gets in the way. Satan's downfall was pride. He wanted to be like God. He wanted the worship that was going to God to be his, and he fell. Adam and Eve's sin was to be like God, and the whole world fell. The sin that will keep people away from God is that same pride. Well, I just can't believe that I don't do anything. You say, all I got to do is say a prayer, accept a gift. Nope, too easy, can't do it. I want to do something. And then they'll go out and try to fill that hole that they're never going to be able to fill because they reject the simplicity of it. That's why Jesus said we all had to become like children to be able to enter the kingdom. Give up our pride and just accept what he holds out for us. The father holds a gift out for us. A child takes the gift. The, the adult looks at it and says, okay, where are the strings? What's the trap? What's the catch? You know, it's too simple just to take and grab hold of that gift. 
you know, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to take that grip, and you're going to wrap chains around me, and I'm going to be bound, so I'm not going to take that chain. I'm not going to take that gift. And he said, it's, it's a free gift. Just take the gift. And, we're, and, and we, in our pride, we look at all the reasons why it can't be free. Well, I sure wouldn't do this for somebody else, so God sure wouldn't. Well, you know what? God's a lot higher than we are. And this is the good news. I like the fact that God does things that I would never do. And he does them in a way that I would never do them. And there's things about God that I don't fully understand. And that is a good thing. Because if we could understand God completely, he would not be God. He'd be a creation of mankind, just as the idols. Man creates idols, and they know, they know exactly everything about that idol. They're in control of that idol. They put that idol where they want to put it. They worship the way they want to. And that idol never says anything about what they're doing. And they're happy. They have a God of their own creation that they fully understand and, and, and have created, which makes them God, which is what they wanted in the first place. Our God of the Bible is so complex that we will never understand him. And I know what I really truly believe. We will never understand him from all of eternity. He will still be greater and higher than we are because he is God. He will always be stronger, more knowledgeable, more understanding, more gracious, more loving. Even when he makes us love perfectly, he will still have a level above what we have because he is God. And this is going to be something that is phenomenally hard to com comprehend. He's going to give us a perfect body. We're not going to want to sin. We're going to love. We're going to forgive. And yet his love and his forgiveness will still be greater than what, he, what we have because he is God. And this is going to be the amazing thing. He's always going to be God. He's always going to be greater. We are not becoming God. We are becoming the bride of Christ brought into the family of God, but we are not becoming God. And this is something we have to understand. We're his children, we're his children we're, and we're Jesus' bride. We'll have a special place. We will be placed above the angels. We are not becoming angels. We don't become angels when we die. We are in a place above angels. And the angels have taken care of us while we're on this world. And we will rule over them in our new bodies and our new position in heaven. Because of God's grace and the position that he puts us in. It's a great picture. The picture there is the same picture we have on earth. There's nobody greater or worse when it comes to the foot of the cross. But God has given us assignments. The, the father is the head of the house, not because he's more special than the wife or even smarter than the wife. And usually the man is dumber than the wife in many cases. But God has said, you are in charge of the family. You are responsible. We go to heaven, and these angels who have been with God, serving God and serving us, will now have us placed in charge of them. Not because we're better than they are, smarter than they are, stronger than we are. He's, God will say, this is your position. You are now above the angels. And in Paul's description, he says they are schoolmasters. You know, and he's taking the Greek and Roman idea that the schoolmaster, the slave, had run o rule over the children while they were children learning. But as soon as they became adults, everything flipped over, and the child now 
ruled over the schoolmaster. Now, I'm sure that there was a sweeter relationship with them you know, than, than a normal slave, but now they are no longer under the authority of that tutor and that schoolmaster. They are placed above them, and they can do whatever they want with that person who used to make all their decisions. And it's kind of the way it is with our kids. When they're young, we make all their decisions. As they grow, we give them more and more rights. When they become adults, they're making their own decisions. They're making their own, their own uh, decisions and responsible for their own decisions. Well, they happened to look at something different, and that may be part of what Satan's problem was with the creation of man. I am not certain. These, these insignificant uh, creatures that you just created that I'm, I'm stronger of, you know, I'm not serving them. That could be part of what led him to his rebellion. We don't know. We don't know what happened to make him rebel, but it could very much be, what do you mean these, these creatures that you stuck on this planet that can't move from this planet are now going to rule? Oh. And he wanted, then he decided it was time for him to rule. So, and that's speculation, but it, it very, you can picture how that would be. You know, uh, these, these insignificant beings that, got, you know, hey, Father, they can't even leave the planet, and you're, and you're going to put them in charge? You know, they are stuck in those bodies, and you're going to put them in charge? They have no spiritual power, and you're going to put them in charge? I really kind of believe that this was part of the downfall of Satan was, the creation of man and the position that man was going to hold over in the, in the spiritual realm. And it irritated him. Now, I could be wrong. I, you know, there's no proof to it, but it, you can picture that that being, and I've heard others, other people say that that's what they think. All right, back to where we're, verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill their sins always for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul is going after the Judaizers. He goes, the Judaizers kept coming after us and telling us we were wrong to preach to the Gentiles. Remember, in the Jews' mindset, even to this day, Gentiles were born to go to hell. They were not to go, they were not to be in a relationship with God. Now, where they got that wasn't from the Bible, because God was all through the, even the Torah was saying, the Jews and the Gentiles can come in and worship. They can offer the sacrifices. I want them to come. I want them to come. And the Jews kept building bigger and bigger walls to keep the Gentiles from getting in to God. And so the Judaizers were going, Paul is doing bad stuff. He has is, he is taken the message of God to, the, to those Gentiles, to, the, to, the, to those awful Gentiles that, that, that are supposed to be going to hell. And this bothered them. I mean, rightfully, I mean, picture this. Paul is going against everything that these Jewish believers, these Jews believe. He is the epitome of the danger to them. It would be like uh, somebody coming into our church and telling us that we, everything we believe has been wrong. All right. Now, in our case, we've got the Bible in 2,000 years to know that, that we're, that's not true. But let's just say somehow we were way off and somebody came into our church and said, you know, gave us proof and everything that we're wrong. We would probably fight tooth and nail not to accept this. This is the Judaizers. The message of the gospel of Christ. Jesus died for your sins. You just need to accept Jesus and be saved. And the Judaizers would let Paul 
leave town and then they would come in and say, well, Paul's message is really good. Jesus is really good, but you need to obey the law. And they'd try to teach them the Ten Commandments and all the laws and that they had to go to the, sacrifice, the, the, the sacrificial system and offer their sacrifice and follow the feasts and follow the Ten Commandments and keep the Sabbath and all these other things that were going on. They tried to put them under legalism. And one of the things that I hate is legalism. Now, do I believe in rules and following God and following his rules? Absolute, but not to the point where it says we must or else. Now, if we don't follow God's rules, he will discipline us. And we have probably all been there many times where we know that we're doing wrong and, and God disciplines. And we feel guilty and we know we have to get it corrected. But that's not legalism. That is just God convicting us to live the way we're supposed to live. Legalism is when I'm trying to do things so I can impress God. God, you know, I came to church every day for the last year. That should really be good to you. You should really be happy. God, I have been tithing my money for, for years. You should be really happy that I'm giving you, giving you part of my money. God, I read my Bible every day. Five chapters every day. I pray for three hours every day. You know, now I can't say those things, but for the most part, some of them I can. You know, but, you're, but if you're doing it just to show off to God, God's saying, no, not worth anything. When he comes in and changes us and we start doing those things, and we're doing it before us and God, just to please God and say, God, I know I'm doing this because you want me to, not because I'm trying to earn brownie points, I'm not doing it to to get into heaven and God says good this is what I want and it, uh, the idea of just pleasing him and Paul is saying these people have filled up their sins All right, they are building sin against them when they attacked God's people and this is something that's very special we need to be careful even ourselves that we do not attack another brother or sister because they are gods. They stand and fall before God. Now, it's one thing to go to them in love and say, I'm really concerned to you about you. I've seen this. I've seen you doing these things, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And say it in love and care, not in judgment. But if you're judging each other, that's really bad because there's nothing better about us. We don't deserve God's love any more than anybody else. We don't deserve his, his pleasure above anything else. And he says, the, for the wrath to come is upon them to the uttermost. So they are going to face punishment. And in Paul basically is here almost saying that they're not saved. They're, they are facing damnation for their actions. Now that's pretty judgmental. I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> Many of the Judaizers probably were not saved. But I'm not sure that all of them weren't. They were giving what they understood the gospel to be. Jesus died, but now we've got to match our Judaism, which I have believed for, for years and decades. How do I match up? And this is why I keep telling us all the time, we cannot let the doctrine we believe from our church interfere with what the Bible tells us. When the Bible says something, we've got to believe the Bible and not what we've been taught for our lifetime. And that's difficult, especially if you believe something for 20, 30, 40 years, 
And then all of a sudden you read in the Bible and it doesn't match up to what you've been believing. It's hard to say, oh, I've been wrong for 30 years. Pride gets in the way. <laughs> I, how could I have been wrong? Nope, got it. There's no way. I, I have to be misunderstanding what I've read. I can't have been wrong for 30 years. And God is saying, read. <laughs> Believe my word. And there's times when we read his word and we go, God, I am sorry. I have been wrong. And hopefully not often. The better we're taught, the less that happens. But there are people that have had false religions. They've been in part of cults. Uh, they have been following bad teachers. And there's going to be times when they look and they go, I just can't believe I ever believed that. And have to deal with it. And say, God, forgive me. And then if you've been a teacher and you've been teaching it wrong, you're going to say, God, forgive me for teaching it wrong. And you'll have to correct it. And that's not easy sometimes, especially if you've been teaching something for 10, 20 years, and you've got to find a way to reach out to the people that you have taught wrong and reach out and say, hey, you know, I am sorry. Now, again, are they, and we've said this before, are they without uh, blame? No, they should have been good Bereans. They should have been studying themselves. But we do have a tendency just to believe our teacher because they're a teacher. They've been studying for a long time. And that's why I keep saying, I want good Bereans in our church. I don't want anybody to believe something just because I said so. Yes, I've been studying for a long time. Yes, I might be right, more often than not. But that doesn't mean I can't teach something wrong. And I need people that are going to get into the Scripture and say, well, you know, I don't know, Pastor. That just doesn't match up with what I'm reading in the Scripture. And I've been there, done that many times in my lifetime, where a pastor's taught something I'm I like this pastor, but I'm just not sure that this one is, is right. There's some of the radio pastors, some of them that I really, really love and, love and admire, and there's times when they say something, I'm going, where in the world did they come up with that? You know, no matter how good the teacher is, they're not going to be 100% right. And we want to be able to understand that and open up our scriptures. And Paul is saying, these guys are going in, and they, they're buying damnation to themselves with their judgment. Uh, Verse 17, but, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in the present, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So Paul's saying, I really wanted to come back. I was chased out of town, and I really wanted to get back to you. And He's going to say in verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And this literally means that Satan got in between him and them over and over again. There have been times when, you, when I have had uh, the, the desire to do something and things just keep blocking it. Now, is that God blocking it or Satan blocking it? The answer is probably yes. Uh, yes to both, yeah. Uh, because if God wanted me to get there, it doesn't matter what Satan tries to do. So I think, and even in this case, Paul is saying, I really wanted to come back to you. My heart was to come back to you, but Satan hindered me. But Satan couldn't have hindered him if God wasn't allowing Satan to hinder him. So Paul's desire was to go see them. We've all probably had things where we just know we wanted to do something. Like 
in this case, no, it wasn't even that God, Paul did not say God wanted him to go there. He said, I have desired to go to you. All right, and Satan has hindered me. So Satan would give him the flat tire, uh, you know, use up his funds that were going to go for the boat ride, you know, put, put thieves in the road, whatever. It was his goal to keep him from getting to the Thessalonians, but note, Paul never said, God told me to go. Because if God told him to go, Satan couldn't have stopped him. Satan would have made his life miserable and hard, but he would have made it to the destination. Just as when Paul is taken from Jerusalem and goes to Rome, he ends up shipwrecked. They end up having trouble. It takes them you know, a year and a half, two years to get to a place that should have only taken them several months. Satan tried to keep him from getting to Rome, but God wanted him in Rome. So even though all these block, blocks came up, God moved him forward. And so here we see the same thing. Paul's desire is, I love you guys so much, I wanted to get back there and, and teach you and love you some more and help you get started, but Satan hindered me. You know, if he had said, God told me to come, then we would have been reading that Paul had ended up in Thessalonica. All right? Uh, but he's being hindered, and he cannot be hindered. If God wanted him there, Satan could not have ultimately hindered it. He would have made life difficult. Don't get me wrong. He would have made life difficult. But Paul would have kept moving toward Thessalonica with each, with each hindrance. But because he could not get there, it was his desire. He wanted to go minister to them. He wanted to... Remember, we said at the very beginning, this is a church that Paul loved. He, this is a church that he apparently has no problems with, other than the fact that he wants to love them and love on them and be loved on, back from them because they are a church with no problems <laughs> that, that are mentioned. Now, does that mean they have no problems? No, but he's going, you know, I remember you guys. You loved us. You, love, you, you loved us. You, you're loving God. You're following God. You're being a great example. I really want to get back to you and just, just to have a good experience. Because a lot of these churches Paul went to were trouble. <laughs> you know, uh, had problems, had issues. And Paul's correcting their issues. This is a picture of love for the most part. He's not correcting hardly anything. There, we'll get to a place where he start makes, makes some small corrections. But their corrections are pretty minor compared to the Corinthian church, the Ephesian church, the Philippian church. That he's having to put some pretty big corrections on. Here he's just going to talk about uh, you've, been, you've been tricked into the afterlife. You know, Jesus hasn't come. The, the rapture hasn't come. You know, all these things. And he'll, he'll talk to them about those. Uh, but he's concerned for them about the bad doctrine that they have received. And he says, I wanted to get to you, but Satan wouldn't let me get there. He goes, uh, basically, he's exposing his heart. I loved you so much, I want to get there. And this is the pastor's heart. I, you know, I cannot imagine being away from this church for a long period of time. Now, maybe God will do something sometime, but even when I'm gone for like one Sunday, it, to me is, you know, I haven't been in my church forever. <laughs> You know, Paul has been away from them for a long time. And his heart is, I want to get back to you. I want to, I want to help you get even stronger in your love. You guys are doing so well. You treated us so well. You followed us. You listened. You obeyed. I want to get back to you and have some good times. Paul was a church planter. Not all of his church plants went smoothly. Uh, and church planting is a hard job. Because you plant a church and then you leave it in the hands of somebody who's a very new Christian. 
And Paul never spent more than a year and a half, two years any place. So oftentimes when he left the church, he was leaving a new believer, only a year and a half, two years old, to be the pastor of that church. Now usually he'd leave Timothy or Silas or Paul for another year, but that person was in charge of the church, not, not the one that he left behind. They were just there to give moral support and advice, and then after a year or two they'd join Paul wherever Paul ended up. And so Paul is saying, I just want to get back to you. You guys are such a good church, and I have very loving and very, very good thoughts of you, and I would love to come back, but Satan keeps me from coming. And again, that just tells us that God didn't want him, wasn't saying go. And you know, Paul never said, God said to me to go. He says, I desire, I have this great affection to you. I want to get back to you. And we always need to be careful when something is us wanting to do something, we need to be putting it before God and saying, God, is this what you want? And the funny thing is there's oftentimes the choice that we make are not between good and bad. You know, it's not, all right, do I go sleeping with that person tonight or do I go to church? It's not that easy, <laughs> all right? It's do I go to church or do I go minister to this sick person over here who really needs to be ministered to? There's no necessarily right or wrong in that answer. God may say, go minister to that sick person. But that's when we have to go before God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And it gets hard. Because most of our decisions as Christians are not between bad and good. They're between good and best. And God is saying, I have the best out there. Are you willing to walk in the best or are you going to go walk in the good? And too many times we walk in the good instead of the best because we don't go to God and seek what he wants. We really need to bathe all of our decisions in prayer. And I'm just as guilty as everybody else about not bathing all of my decisions in prayer. Sometimes I go, well, this looks really good, and I go off and do it. And, then and, you pray after I do and sometimes I pray after when it doesn't seem like it was really the best. God, what was it that I just did? And God says, well, you're not in the right place. You were supposed to be over here. All right. Um, so we need to be praying and saying, God, what is the best for me? Where am I supposed to be at this particular time? You know, and I'm not going to say the church is always the right place to be. Most of the time, it's going to be the right place to be. But there may be a weekend where somebody says, I just need to get away with my family and go camping. And if that's where God wants you, that investment into your family is a great place to be. Now, if you go invest in your family camping every single weekend, including every Sunday, then you're not in the right place. You need to assemble with the church. But missing one Sunday a quarter, one Sunday a year, or two Sundays a year, three Sundays a year is not going to be the end of the world as long as God is leading in that area. So listen to God. Follow God. And the last part of this verse is verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? So Paul's given a little statement here. And remember, we've, we've noticed in here that Paul likes threes. All right, This is another one of those threes. What is our hope, our confident expectation? What is our joy? What, it, what, is, what is bringing that in? And what is our crown of rejoicing? The crown of rejoicing. What, what is a crown? What, what is going to make us the most happy? And he says, are not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul is saying, when I think of you, I take glory and joy 
to talk about you. He goes, I'm remembering, I'm seeing a church that is growing, I'm taking pleasure in it, and the greatest thing for a pastor is to be able to see that his people are growing in Christ. I love when people go, well, how are things going in your church? My, my people are growing, you know, phenomenally in God. But what do you, you know, and they go, what about your other things? Well, my numbers aren't that great, the baptisms aren't that great, but my people are growing. You know, uh, I would love to see more salvations, more baptisms. But you know what? The greatest joy I have is to watch people's lives changed as God gets in them and changes them. And then God will bring the, the new salvations in as time goes on. And when we get new salvations, then we'll have baptisms. But we need to get people on fire for God so they will share God with others so that we can get them saved so that they can start growing. And Paul's answer to them is, you, you Thessalonians are our joy, our glory. And he has various churches that he says, I talk about you all the time. I use you as an example. You are the ones that I talk about. You are the ones that, that I lift up. You are the ones that, that we want to, to uh, have everybody looking at as an example. This is one of his churches that he says, you're the ones I look at. I am so glad that you are following God the way you're following God. And he gets excited to follow them. And he says he gets excited about where they are. And our job is very simple, to love God, follow him, be imitators of Christ as we see our leaders following Christ. And this is what Paul has said, you follow me as I followed Christ. And this is very important for us. How do we know how to live? We look at others and see how they live. And then we follow the way they do it right. <laughs> All right, knowing that they're not perfect. But we look at it and it says, this person shows me what love is about. I want to imitate how they love. I want to imitate how this person over here shows forgiveness. I want to imitate how this person witnesses. I want to imitate how this person prays. And we imitate the good Christian attributes of people. And if they're not following Christ, don't imitate them. At least not in that area. <laughs> you know, follow God. I know some people that I love them. They're good Christian people, but there's certain areas in their life that I would not imitate because of where, they're, where they head with, a, with certain attitudes and certain activities. And we need to be able to say, God, help me. Give me people to sh live out what you want. The hardest thing in the world is to live something out that you haven't seen. If you haven't seen love, it's hard to love. If you don't see forgiveness, it's hard to forgive. Now, God can teach us. But don't get me wrong. He can teach us these things. But life is a whole lot easier when we see something done. Uh, when I've learned how to fix a car, anything on a car, it's much easier if I have had somebody watch somebody or have them watching me and saying, no, no, don't do that, do this. Having that person there to help you is a lot easier than just trying to learn it from a book. And this is what Paul's saying. You were imitators of us. Keep that imitation up. Now you are an example to the rest of the, rest of the churches. They are now, looking, are now saying, look at you. Keep up the good work, because I'm now telling people, look at you. And this is the beauty that eventually we can say, look at so-and-so. They, they are a great example of walking with God. 
And the more people we have in our church that are good examples of walking with God, when we get new people in, there will be more people to be able to say, you know, you know, you're not just following pastor, you're not just following this person, you're not just following that person. There's a whole group of people that you can follow and learn what it means to love people and serve God. And that is the beauty, and this is what Paul is saying. You are examples. Yes, you've been attacked. There are groups that are trying to get you to drag you down, but you are examples. You are following God in a good way. All right, end of the chapter. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Help us to stand before you and be examples to others of how to live for you. And help us to always be good followers of you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.